Everybody and welcome to Below the Void. I'm your host Donovan, coming to you solo once again. Uh, today, I I want to do something a little bit different. It's going to be a little bit of a shorter episode than usual because I kind of just want to give you guys an update about um, where the show is going, what we're going to be doing, hopefully what our recording schedule will look like going forward. And I just feel like there's um, been a lack of content lately so I want to address that and just sort of get it out there in the open so that everyone understands what's going on with the show. So when we started this show obviously we wanted to do a paranormal podcast. Um, It was what I was listening to at the time. There were several shows that I liked some of which I'm still listening to today that are phenomenal and super entertaining and it really reignited inside me the love that I had for this subject. And so when we got together to start recording and we decided what we wanted the show to be, as we started recording those first shows, we just sort of fell into what the show ended up being, which was an emphasis on our opinion on things um, with, you know, what we consider to be a comedic spin. I can't claim that everything we say is funny but we try to put that sort of comedic spin on things that's what we feel makes our show different from from others is that we try to be an entertainment uh, comedy podcast first just so happens that our subject matter tends towards the the paranormal or or the dark but as the years have gone by and especially now that we've started recording under you know below the void um with that change, I think it opened us up to maybe take the show in new directions in some ways. Obviously, my main the main content that I want to put out is still going to be what you're used to, where it's the four of us um, sitting around a mic, recording our thoughts about horror movies and ghost stories and all that sort of stuff. But along with that... Um, one of the things that's really on my list of things to do personally is to do a little bit more travel, um, almost entirely within, you know, our home state of Minnesota. Um, and I'd, I'd like to be able to sort of transcribe the feeling of, of travel, the feeling you get of, of, um, discovery and, and wonder and, all that sort of thing. You know, it's one of those things that makes me feel so great, and yet I feel like I don't have a good way of of properly expressing it. You know, it's one of those things where I just don't think a Facebook or Twitter post is just uh, is enough to really cover it. So I'd like to to um, to do a few episodes just to test it out to see, you know, what a below the void episode is like when we're just talking about a road trip. 
even if it's not to somewhere paranormal. Now, obviously, we have a bucket list of places that we want to hit as far as, um, you know, paranormal hotspots and stuff like that. But for right now, the things that are on my list of, of places that I can get to, you know, in, in a day or so, because, you know, that, that's really all the time that I have, um, you know, most weeks. Um, the, the, the sites that we're looking at aren't necessarily super creepy or paranormal. You know, some of them are just, um, you know, cool nature spots. Some of them are, you know, historic in value, especially for someone who loves the state of Minnesota like I do. And so I, I want to uh, to do some shows where the main focus is just kind of like a travelogue. And hopefully we can make it entertaining and hopefully it's something that you guys like. Obviously, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. You know, we can always go back to the format that we were going on. I just want to try something new, especially considering that um, I find it easier to record things that are happening in my life anyways. It's just, it's a lot easier to fit that into a schedule, you know, with a full-time job and obligations and all that sort of stuff. So we're going to give that a try. Um, with that being said, the first major trip we're taking, um, hopefully um, uh, our good friend Mr. B will be joining us, but Blair and I will be going um, and staying at a cabin on Devil's Track Lake in northern Minnesota in the first weekend in November. So we hope to do a podcast from that location and um, and talk about our travels and the stuff that we see along the way. So with that, um, you know, that's kind of the, the main difference, I think, in the content coming up. Um, and I don't want you to think that the, the focus of the show is going to be changing away from paranormal. We're just going to try and get um, some travel logs out and see how it goes. Um, so <clears throat> the other thing ab about the content is that, um, I'm sure you've noticed by now that this is the second show in a row where it's just me. And we're gonna, you know, like I said last time, essentially whenever we have content to put out, we're gonna put it out. And it, it's not always going to be the four of us together, unfortunately. I know that's one of the, the draws to the show is is having the four of us and, and bouncing ideas and jokes off of each other. But it's, you know, it's, it's hard to make that happen, unfortunately. So some of the episodes are going to be, you know, three of us, two of us, sometimes solo. Um, <clears throat> and hopefully the majority of the shows will still be the four of us. But in order to keep content coming, um, I just, I decided to open it up to not having strictly just the four of us together. So, um, I believe that's most of the, the housekeeping things that I wanted to get out of the way. Um, the story that I wanted to talk about today is something that I actually read about in a book that I checked out from my elementary school library. So the way our elementary school library works, I'm sure it's the same most places across America, is it works like a regular library, but you don't need a card. Basically, if you're, if you're a student, you get to um, go into the library and you get to check something out for a week and you bring it back. Well, one of the books that I checked out was this ratty little hardcover um, book of mysterious stories and I can't remember what it was called 
But I remember, I remember two things about this book. The first was that there was a story in it that was accompanied by an illustration of a, a crazy man eating his own skin. So he, he was like, it's like a kind of a crude, like black and white pencil drawing, but it was a guy, he was clearly mad. His hair was all messed up. His eyes were wide and he was just ripping a big chunk of flesh off of his arm. And it, it was drawn in a way where, you know, his skin was coming off like he was taking a big bite out of it. I remember that because my friend at the time, um, who I'm ashamed to say his name escapes me, uh, but he was a, cl a close friend of mine in elementary school. I want to say this was third grade. Uh, this picture frightened him to the point where he t told the teacher on me because I kept showing it to him because I, I realized that it bugged him and like I just thought it was kind of interesting and cool because I've always been kind of weird like that. I don't remember what the story was that that illustration accompanied, but I, I remember that vividly. Like, I have a picture of that in my mind right now. The other story that I still remember to this day really creeped me out, and it was about the moving coffins of Barbados. Now, this is a fairly well-known story, um, mostly because it's so old. It happened in the 1800s, and... Uh, I'm not even going to summarize it for you. I'm just going to read this article that I think kind of encompasses the whole thing. Um, but this is the mysterious coffins of Barbados. And this is another uh, article from the illustrious historicmysteries.com, which, as I said last episode, fantastic. Love their content. Um, and this is the story. So various versions of this have been told throughout the years and details have become confused. It's hard to tell where the truth ends and lore takes over, but there was undoubtedly something unexplainable going on. Today, it looks like a perfectly ordinary tomb and a perfectly ordinary cemetery. The graveyard of Christ Church near Oyston's Bay, Barbados, was the unlikely home of a string of mysterious events early in the 19th century. The tomb belonged to the Chase family, a family infamous for unusual behavior. The father of the clan, Colonel Thomas Chase, was so vicious that his slaves threatened to kill him. So that should tell you kind of whereabouts in the timeline of the Americas this was, unfortunately. Early in the 1800s, Colonel Chase purchased a large crypt in Christchurch Cemetery. The first Chase family member buried in the tomb was the baby of the family, Mary Chase. She was placed in the tomb with a heavy metal casket in February of 1808. In July of 1812, the teenage daughter, Dorcas Chase, was buried. She had starved herself to death, and some say she killed herself due, uh, due to the cruelties of her father. Colonel Chase himself died in August, possibly a suicide, and was placed into the tomb in a metal coffin so heavy it took several men to carry it. When they opened the tomb for his interment, they noticed that Mary's coffin had moved from its original spot and was standing on its head near a corner of the tomb. Suspecting some kind of malicious mischief by somebody uh, on the island, they righted the casket and made sure the heavy stone door of the tomb was sealed extra tight. Two burials in 1816 again found the coffins inexplicably moved from their original positions. After one of them, according to the People's Almanac, 
a woman in the graveyard heard frightening sounds coming from the chase tomb. Her horse became so terrified that it began foaming at the mouth, and a few days later several horses in the area went insane and threw themselves into the bay. In July of 1819, a relative was buried in the crypt, and it was discovered that the chaos in the crypt had repeated itself. The governor of Barbados had attended this funeral and was determined to find out what was going on. When the caskets had been put right and the tomb was being resealed, the governor put impressions of his signet ring into the wet cement to ensure nobody could go into the crypt late at night and move the coffins around. Additionally, sand was sprinkled on the floor to capture any evidence of trespassers. In April of 1820, the tomb was opened for the final time. The signet ring's marks were still clear in the cement, showing that nobody had entered the crypt by the front door, the only entrance to the tomb. The men opening the tomb had trouble getting the door open as there was something pressing against the door from the inside. More men were called in to help with the effort, and the door was finally opened to reveal Colonel Chase's casket blocking the door and the other coffins scattered around the room. There were no marks in the sand on the floor. The governor had had enough. He called for each coffin in the tomb to be buried elsewhere in the cemetery, and the crypt has been empty ever since. Many people over the years have attempted explanations for the strange phenomenon of the moving coffins of Barbados, including earthquakes, although no other tombs in the cemetery have been similarly, uh, similarly disturbed, and flooding, although no cracks were found in the crypt, uh, and it's debatable if the heavy metal coffins would float. To this day, the movement of the coffins in the chaste tomb remains a mystery. So I remember when I read this story, and this wasn't the exact text of the story I read, it was just the same uh, incident. It was accompanied by a, a diagram that showed the, where the coffins were supposed to be and then where they were at each time that the, the vault was opened up. And I remember as a, a, a child reading this and thinking there was no other explanation possible other than go surreal and that was one of the things that sparked my early interest in the paranormal because i i i had this idea in my head of the story that couldn't possibly have been fabricated and that there wasn't possibly another explanation for now obviously as we look at this story today um obviously i don't think any of the actual explanations for what could have happened in that crypt are satisfactory. Like they said, an earthquake could have moved them, but why only that specific crypt? Nothing else in the cemetery was damaged. And flooding, on top of there being no evidence of it, flooding would have also disturbed the sand on the floor, which, you know, was the thing that spooked me when I was a kid, because it was like, if there was an actual person, or even if it was like an undead reanimated corpse zombie kind of thing, the sand would have been, there would have been footprints and, and indentations in the sand, and there wasn't any of that. So the solution in my head as a child was angry ghosts were moving it around, and it sounded like the family was not happy. Now, here's the, the thing, and this could be my memory failing me, but I seem to recall there being, on top of the father being abusive to the family, there was something about the the mother of the family 
having particular hatred for one of the daughters. And in another version of this story that I was told, or, or that I think I've read, because I don't think I'm making this up, but I'm not going to rule that out because, you know, sometimes uh, <laughs> my memory is extremely faulty. But I remember hearing that rather than what this story said that everyone was moved out of that vault that they simply moved the mother and once they moved the mother out of the tomb the spirit of the daughter who was abused could rest and the, the activity stopped so i don't i don't know where that came from i i think it was in that book that i read as a kid um but i have this memory of this story in my head and Honestly, it's also possible that I'm conflating it with a completely different story. So if I am, please, <laughs> please let me know. Um, but that's always where I connected this into my head was that um, the, the daughter and the mother had a feud and, and they had to be separated. Another kind of interesting thing about this story is um, there was a TV show in the late 90s, early 2000s um, called Beyond Belief Factor Fiction. And the conceit of this story was they would tell you five stories in this hour-long program. And some of them were uh, dramatized versions of real events that had been documented. And some of the stories were completely made up. And the, you know, the, the game, I guess, was to guess which was which. And at the end of the show, they told you um, which ones were true and which ones were false. And sometimes they would tell you where the actual source came from, from the story that was true, because usually they would change quite a bit of, of the details. But this moving coffin story was uh, one that was featured on that show. And it was updated to modern day. I, I remember like rather than the governor of the island, it was like a, um, a sheriff or a police officer who was um, working with the the groundskeeper of the cemetery to try and figure out what was going on. And now that I'm thinking about it, it might be that dramatized version of it where the where I'm getting the conflict between the daughter and the mother. So that that could have been easily something they added to that version of the story, um, you know, for flair and wasn't necessarily true. And that might be where I'm getting it from, because I know I've seen that show quite a bit. It's one of the ones that I watched quite a bit growing up, because I used to just love those kind of eerie stories, especially when they were supposedly true. So, so I remember being an older child, probably in like middle school or high school, seeing this Beyond Belief episode, and then having that trigger the memory of, of the book that I had read in elementary school. So that was the, the the case of the moving coffins, which is something that um, obviously it left an impression on me because I remember it all these years later. And it was, you know, I don't know, it's an old story. There's not a lot of frills to it, but the the core concept of it, the fact that these coffins were moving around and there was no real way for it to happen, it's still kind of... It, it kind of gets to me. I'm recording this by myself. Um, it's like 10.30 at night. And I'm, I'm a little creeped out. I'm not going to lie. Um, now, what do I think the actual... What does what the, like, the logical part of me think about this story? I think the likeliest explanation is that the story was exaggerated at some point. 
and probably that exaggeration compounded throughout the years. I don't doubt that something happened in in this crypt where things were amiss, but the the fact that like every time the crypt was open it was messed up, I'm not certain that I think those historical, even though it is documented, I feel like might not be the most um, reliable sources. It feels like a like a, a folklore tale that's been that's kind of taken on a life of its own. So I think the most logical explanation for it is <clears throat> that it was a real event, probably explainable, um, but in the telling over the years, the story became more and more extreme to the point where those explanations don't make sense anymore, and it becomes a great ghost story rather than what it might have been. Now, again, I never discount the possibility that there was restless spirits moving stuff around. That's, that is the, the explanation that I like the best. That is the one that I would like to be true. Uh, I just don't know if it's necessarily the most likely. <clears throat> so um, that was the story of the moving coffins. Please let me know what you think. Um, if you, by any crazy stretch of the imagination, are know this book that I'm talking about, this probably written in the 70s, um, you know, it's the size of a paperback, but it's it's hardcover, you know, and it has the, uh, I don't know, really, really generic artwork on the front. I don't remember what it was called. If anyone thinks they know what that is, I would absolutely love to find out. So let us know. Uh, info at belowthevoid.com. So with that, we're going to take a quick break. I'm getting a little dry in the throat here. And uh, we'll be right back with one more story before we wrap up tonight. All right?
All right, welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that brief musical interlude. Uh, so while we're sticking on this subject of things that creeped out young Donovan, um, we've talked about this book before on the podcast. It's called Unexplained by Jerome Clark. It was a book that I got as a young child, um, probably fourth, fifth grade is when I started really getting into the paranormal stuff, and that's what this book is. It just documents all sorts of paranormal phenomenon, like you know, hauntings, cryptids, UFO encounters, all that sort of stuff. You know, when we talked about the Flatwoods monster, this was the book we referenced where there was that picture that really creeped us out. One of the things um, back when I first started paging through this book that scared me the most was the Mad Gassers of Mattoon. Now, this is a weird, weird story, and I just want you to kind of go with me on this journey as I read about what happened uh, in the town of Mattoon, Illinois, in 1944. Now, it was accompanied by a picture, a drawing of, of what this, I guess, creature, uh, man, psychopath, I don't really know. You're going to have to draw your conclusions for yourself as to what this phenomenon was. Uh, but the picture that they provided was absolutely haunting to me. I have a, it's one of those things where I have the picture in my mind. Maybe it's laughably stupid now, but as a kid, it, it really, really got to me. Um, so I want to read this story. I want to take a look at it through more adult eyes and see what we can make of this story of the mad gassers of Mattoon. Once again, this is from historicmysteries.com, and it's titled, Did the Mad Gasser of Mattoon Really Exist? The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, also known as the Phantom Anesthetist or Anesthetic Prowler, was the supposed perpetrator of a series of alleged gas attacks targeting the residents of Mattoon, Illinois. The incidents began on August 31st, 1944, and lasted two weeks. In total, about 35 individuals believed they were victims, as they suffered symptoms in their own homes. The identity of the mad gasser, and whether or not the gassings were ever, uh, or whether the gassings ever really occurred, are still a mystery. On Thursday, August 31st of 1944, Urban Reef... Uh, assuming this is a man's name, awoke to a strange smell in his bedroom that soon became so overpowering that he became physically ill. He woke his wife, and she wondered if there might be a problem with the pilot light in the kitchen. She decided to get up and check, but she found that her legs wouldn't move. Thankfully, these symptoms went away in a short time. The pilot light she found was working perfectly. Nearby, on September 1st, three separate households reported similar symptoms. In one family, the mother went to check on her daughter, but found that she too was paralyzed from the waist down. The mothers and children felt the effects of gas in the other two homes as well. One of the families had seen a prowler wearing a tight-fitting cap and dark clothing. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> pardon me, this is the, the picture of the guy the tight-fitting cap and dark clothing. When I read this now, I'm thinking of, like, a typical, like, burglar, right? Like, wearing all black clothes with a black stocking cap on. Um, the picture that they have in the book, now, now that I've, I'm thinking about it, it matches that description, <clears throat> but the proportions are wrong, I guess? Like, he's really tall and looks almost like he's wearing, like, a black robe, and the like the gas cloud underneath him makes it look like he's floating so i always got kind of like a wizard 
like mystical kind of vibe from this thing. But as I'm reading this now, it kind of seems like this might just be an intruder who is like gassing people. <clears throat> let, let, let's read on. All right, so this next bit is a quote attributed to one Mrs. Kearney. She says, I first noticed a sicking sweet odor in the bedroom. The odor grew stronger, and I began to feel a paralysis of my legs and lower body. End quote. Although the police drafted incident reports, they found no hard evidence to point them in any direction. Early reports also came to the attention of the local newspaper. They had found a terrific story and published sensational articles on September 2nd about the incidents, citing such specifics as to the smell of the gas and the explicit symptoms experienced by the victims. Their coverage of the story stated that there was some kind of a madman out there in the dark who was creeping around and pumping poisonous gas into people's homes. They called this phantom the anesthetic prowler and subsequently the mad gasser. The poison, they claimed, could have been chloroform or ether, according to the description of its smell. Over the next few days, more and more people reported to the police and the newspaper that they had been the victim of a similar attack. They, too, had experienced a sickly sweet smell and then burning sensations, nausea, and partial paralysis. There were two reports on the 5th and on that night that the police seemed to have caught a lucky break. A couple arrived at their home late and found on their front porch a square of white cloth. The woman reached out and put the cloth to her nose. As she smelled it, her nose and throat burned immediately. Police investigated and found a skeleton key and a tube of lipstick nearby. At that point, everyone wondered if the couple may have interrupted the mad gasser in the middle of an attack. However, when investigators analyzed the white cloth, they claimed it was free of any odor. Also, the skeleton key and lipstick tube provided nothing substantial. Seven more incidents took place on the 6th, during which time a homeowner saw a tall, thin man running from their yard. On the 7th, the Smiths suffered their second attack and heard some kind of buzzing sound and saw a thin, blue, vaporous substance. Then, through September 10th, six more attacks occurred. Throughout early September, roughly 35 people had suffered symptoms of sickness, paralysis, difficulty breathing, dry mouth, lightheadedness, and a burning sensation. The police would answer each call, but came no closer to solving the case. Frustrating clues that went nowhere included cut window screens, open windows, and unfamiliar female footprints outside some of the houses. The panic escalated. Mattoon residents felt that law enforcement was not acting quickly enough. They set up armed patrol guards, uh, which the police strongly urged them to disband. By this time, the FBI was brought in, but even they could not come to a concrete decision about what was happening in Mattoon. The police were stumped. They said they had no motive. No robberies, physical assaults, or kidnappings had occurred. On September 12th, the police announced their investigation findings. They believed there had been no actual attacks and that the entire series of crimes was due to mass hysteria fueled by the initial reports in the local newspaper. They suggested that any form of gas going into a citizen's home was due to accidental chemical emissions from Atlas Imperial Diesel Engine Company plant, which it does not say so in the article, but I'm assuming this is a plant um, nearby in the city of Mattoon, Illinois. This explanation seemed to satisfy some. However, it would not explain the white cloth, skeleton key, lipstick tube of the one incident, and, and although one could argue that these three items were not necessarily linked to the mad gasser attack at all, it left lingering questions. The police solution also dodges an important point. 
Workers at the industrial facility should have felt similar symptoms if gas was escaping from the facility. There had been no such reports by facility workers. Additionally, this police conclusion does not explain the initial five attacks that occurred before the newspaper first reported the story. Nonetheless, the police announcement seemed to have done the trick. On the 13th, the last report of an attack came in. A woman stated she saw the mad gasser outside her house and described a woman dressed in men's clothing. Sociologists and the like have poured over newspaper accounts and police records since 1944 and are still skeptical. Was there a woman out there in the dark with some kind of paralyzing gas? Or did the power of suggestion cause residents to experience mass hysteria after they read about it in the newspaper? Perhaps the nearby plant leaked some kind of toxic substance and then tried to cover it up. Did they leave misleading evidence around the neighborhood that pointed to some individual? By mid-September, all events related to the mad gas were stopped, and Mattoon went back to its normal small-town existence. So, that's the basically the entire story of the mad gasser attacks. <coughs> Excuse me. The mad gasser attacks um, started and stopped within a couple of months in 1944, and the official explanation is mass hysteria. So... My problem with that is, as the article points out, there were five attacks that were reported before the newspaper article went out, which means that those five would have happened before the inciting article that could have triggered this mass hysteria. So I feel like while mass hysteria could be a good explanation for some of them, particularly after the newspaper report went out, I feel like it doesn't properly explain those original attacks. The other thing is the actual, like, so I, I know what ether smells like. Um, if I remember correctly, ether smells like, um, if you've ever smelt like rubber cement, like, you know, making construction paper projects. Um, I, I think ether smells like that. It smells a lot like when they put the, the gas mask on you before you go under if you've ever had, you know, surgery like that. That's kind of like the sickly sweet odor that they describe ether as having. I don't know if you can, if you can, like, make ether, like, that's the word I'm looking for. You, I don't know if you can make it an aerosol, right? Like, where you can just spray it. I thought ether had to be concentrated and you had to put it on a cloth and put it up to somebody's face. Um, and some of the reports were saying they had, uh, like, visible gas, which is interesting. Also, however, could be part of the, of the mass hysteria angle. Interestingly, when it comes to, like, this mass hysteria thing, and I, I, I do buy that explanation. And the reason I do is because my brain is very similar to that. And I'll give you an example. Last weekend, while I was home... Um, one of my carbon monoxide detectors started going off and uh, it was pretty obvious that it was a malfunction because it went off. I took it out of the wall, checked it, you know, hit the reset button, put it back in and it didn't go off again. So I, you know, it was pretty, a pretty cut and dried case of the detector went off and it wasn't anything important. But the rest of that day, I was having symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning. 
knowing full well that I was fine, just the fact that the alarm had gone off had put into my head um, a headache, nausea, um, feeling tired and out of energy. And I think it was for no other reason than that the carbon monoxide alarm went off and my brain decided to be a scumbag and treat me like I was dying from carbon monoxide poisoning. So I, I buy the, the, the mass hysteria angle, right? Like if someone tells you that this relatively large number of people in your small town are experiencing this, it's going to make you susceptible to anything that goes bump in the night being explainable by this force that's being talked about in the newspaper. And that can just kind of compound on itself and, and make the whole story kind of run away. And I think that's what this is. I think it's interesting that the the perpetrator is almost certainly a woman. They described a woman running away um, and seeing a a woman dressed in men's clothes with a stocking cap. Um, If I can find the picture inside the Unexplained book and I can post it up in the show notes, I will, just so you can see it. Because having read that story again, it seems like a pretty cut-and-dried non-paranormal case like easily explainable by science and just people being weird but that picture was so frightening to me as a child that I have kind of put it into my head as like some sort of paranormal entity even though I think it clearly isn't which is interesting which is one of the reasons that I like revisiting stuff that I remember from the past because when you look at it through kind of a different lens and with having, you know, more life experience, it kind of makes things turn out a little bit differently. Um, I I am certainly interpreting the story a hell of a lot differently than I did when I first read it all those years ago. So that's the, the mad gasser of Mattoon. Let me know if you, if you have any theories on it, if you think, you know, if you agree with my assessment or if you think I'm full of shit and that there's a, a better explanation out there, I'd love for you to let me know, um, info at belowthevoid.com. And I think that's about going to do it for today. I apologize that the this one is a little bit shorter than usual. But, you know, again, I'm by myself. I can't bounce ideas and energy off of the other guys to keep myself going. So we're going to wrap it up here tonight. Um, I look forward to getting content out a little more frequently. I sincerely hope that you enjoy the content that comes out, even if it is a little bit different than what you might be expecting from us. Um, And with that, just thank you again so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next time. Bye-bye. Spinning on red, white, white lines
like I wanna dance all night till it's raining. I know it's wrong to feel this way in life. I need time, just give me a sec. I wanna dance all night till it's raining. I know it's wrong to feel this way in life. 